This is the Shift Podcast. What makes a passport powerful? Armand Arden, chief global citizen with the Passport Index, explains how the Passport Index works and why some countries have more powerful passports than other ones and where you can go with them too. Turkey is facing inflation over 50%, but the nation continues to be a key player in the war against Ukraine. Dr. Yevgenia Gaber, foreign policy advisor to the prime minister of Ukraine, helps us understand Turkey's role on the world stage and the work she is doing for Ukraine. And she's here with us on The Shift Plus. Are you okay with winning an argument are you okay with not losing an argument which way does that go all of this and more on the shift daily podcast this is the shift podcast are you okay with winning arguments i like this one that would be ideal that would be ideal to win uh, to win most arguments okay uh I do have like a secret though, like what I think oh. is a good secret. Is that even secret? if you lose the, even if you lose the uh, argument, just like try to take the moral high ground so that even oh. if you lose the argument, you still can take something away and maybe the other person will rethink about things. Ooh, that's, that's my secret. Good. All right. Yeah. Okay. BK. Uh, depends. I choose my battles wisely. And another mm. good arguing technique is actually to get the person kind of talking in circles and their whole argument breaks down if they're a really bad argue, arguer. Mm. Uh, I like to do that one sometimes. And sometimes I just lay out and let them self, you know, implode. It's great. Okay. That way's fun. Okay. So I love this. I love arguments. I love the topic of arguments. You ready? Do you know why nobody ever wins an argument? Why? Why, Shane? <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, nobody ever wins an argument because there's nothing to win. You can't. Nobody can win an argument. You can't win an argument. Because usually once you're in an argument, both people are probably right, A, and B, it's attachment to the outcome, which is actually not losing. Because nobody wants to lose an argument. Nobody cares if they win an argument. Just people don't want to lose it. So you're actually not trying to win the argument. You just don't want to lose the argument. So you can never win. Because most people in most arguments, according to their own perspective, are already right. There's nothing to win. Huh. Pride. Most people are trying to get pride. Okay, what's pride? Out of an argument. That's ego. That's vanity. That's fear of looking bad. It's a deadly sin. So, So that's the... Thank you. Um, it's so, but I mean, so that's all it is. It's fear of looking bad. So you're you're in an engagement with somebody on a conversation where you're upset. Both people are upset over things that they see as being accurate and true to themselves, and they don't want to lose, so they don't look bad. That's it. Hmm. So any argument is in fact pointless and just people being insecure. Thanks for coming. <laughs> We're here all week. Knowledge. No, it's it's one of the things that I teach in my in my speaking and my uh, consulting with conversation. Right when you are now debating things, when you have a common outcome, saying, "Hey, we want to do the best." I don't know. Uh, we want to build the best Lego thing ever then we have the oh, same intention and we're speaking into the same thing. But when we're attached to the outcome, which is usually attaching to the outcome is the not looking bad, then we both have two different outcomes. So you're you're speaking two different languages, man. It doesn't work. 
Never works. I think it's evidenced in this story that Ryan has assembled for us. Okay. A manager of a Taco Bell in Dallas pulled out one of the interesting moves, even more interesting than talking in circles, to win an argument at the last minute. She was debating with customers who were trying to resolve a complaint about their food. Oh, this is good. She must have gotten very heated. Ryan's really proud of that. Because she decided to do this to win the argument with the customers. After employees at a Dallas restaurant dumped a bucket of boiling water on them, causing severe burns. The incident caught on surveillance video. You watch it here. Video appears. This story, a woman and her daughter are suing Taco Bell after employees at a Dallas restaurant dumped a bucket of boiling water on them, causing severe burns. The incident caught on surveillance video. You watch it here. Video appears to show that store manager throw the steaming water on the pair as words were being exchanged. The two victims immediately running out of the Taco Bell. Now, according to this lawsuit, the mother and daughter suffered second and third degree burns. Lawyers for the victims, including civil rights attorney Ben Crump, are asking for more than $1 million in damages from Taco Bell and Yum Foods brands that owns Taco Bell. You know, never in my life, which, by the way, that was so good, we get to hear it twice. Never in my life have I ever thought, you know what's going to win this argument? Boiling water. That report was from ABC 11. I know what's going to win. <laughs> Not even a throwing at you. Well, you're dumb. Oh, right. oh I got Ooh. another one. Who? They had scalding comments at oh, each other. It's very good. Some it's pretty terrible, good burns. I know. Yeah, it's it's terrible. Pretty good burns. See, it's just too easy. It's too easy. Yeah. But the video yeah. is shocking, to say yeah. the least. Like it's very scary, actually. Although we make jokes, scary. it is very scary. Yeah. Taco Bell has stayed relatively mum in the incident, saying only in a statement that they take the safety and well-being of team members and customers seriously. Taco Bell said it could not comment further on pending litigation. Uh-oh. Another camera angle shows the manager throwing the liquid from the pitcher at the two women who are standing on the other side of the counter. As soon as the water makes contact, both women can be seen running away. You can actually see the steam as it hits the counter. The lawsuit, which has been published in its entirety by Fox 5, claims that the employee also tried to throw a second pitcher of hot water on the victims as they tried to escape the locked store. Is it possible that it was just pictures of water in the mind of the staff member and didn't know it was hot water in the heat of the moment? Uh, well, you can see her fill it up, yeah. and you can see the steam coming okay. out of the bucket as she walks, like speed walks, power walks okay, so to the customers. And, and, and most restaurants have a tap of, of boiling water, of hot water. Yep. Most yep. places do. So... It seemed pretty, pretty clear. I also like it's kind of hard to tell if it was plastic or if it was glass, the jug. Mm-hmm. But if it was plastic, you would feel the heat instantaneously. Yeah, so, you, would. you totally would. It would radiate right, yeah. right on your hands, right? Yeah. That's wild. Wow. Boy, that's uh, that's uh, just one star on Yelp right there. Are you okay with walking your pet depends on the pet i mean if it's a salamander then not really well pets are different for everybody i guess but i used to have crazy anxiety about walking dogs 
because I never grew up with dogs, right? Never, never had an mm. animal. I never knew how to act around them. And I always just was like, anytime friends invited me, do you want to walk my dog with me? I'd say no. I had this unexplainable, weird thing. Mm-hmm. And then Laura, my partner, got the doggo, Cora, the golden retriever, and it's awesome. It's amazing. And it's so much fun. And it's adorable. So I don't know what I was missing out on and why I had such weird feelings about it. But yeah, no, of course, it's, it's great. I, I, I don't have a pet, but I don't mind people walking their dogs. I like to see the cute dogs that I'm out for around. But the one problem I do have is when they have like the extendable leash mm. and the owner's kind of not paying attention and you're out for a run or doing whatever, going down the sidewalk and they extend it across the entire sidewalk. And a lot of times the owner's like, I don't know, looking at their phone or something, and their dog's leash and dog is taking up the whole sidewalk, and you're barreling down in kilometer, you know, 17 of your run. It's like, yo, watch that extendable leash there. That was very relatable until you said kilometer 17. Yeah, sorry. Okay. <laughs> Marathon man. 300 meters. Or there whatever. you go. Yeah, there you go. That's more like it. The first flight of stairs. Um Oh, yeah, I totally get it. I mean, it does depend on the animal. Of course, like if you have a fish, then walking your fish is probably not great. Um, but I, you're, I think you're right. There's a responsibility that comes with that. I don't understand Ryan's anxiety over walking a dog. I mean, I'm always worried about the dog getting hit by a car and things yeah. like that, getting off the leash. Might be that. Uh, nobody wants to see that happen. But Confederation Park is a popular destination for dog walkers in Calgary. It's beautiful. But one pet owner is turning heads when he strolls the paths with his pet python draped around his neck. When Jeff Arsenault goes for a walk, he's discovered there's two kinds of people, those who are drawn to him and his pet, and those who recoil at the sight of his twisted companion. See, that's the fun part. While most are passing by with a pooch, Arsenault walks to the beat of his own drum with Monty. Nice daylight today. Why not? Better than leave her in a cage. She needs fresh air. She needs the sun too. Monty is a 16-year-old ball python. Arsenault describes her as friendly and likes to be handled. A good thing because she makes a lot of friends. Can I touch it? Yeah, go ahead. I gotta take a picture, put it on Facebook. Okay. <laughs> The ball python is a non-venomous constrictor, while bear pythons can suffocate and eat a deer whole. Monty hasn't ever tried to constrict Jeff. In fact, she allows him to meet new people every day. What do you feed this snake? Mouse. Some with memories of kids' pet snakes. It got away once in a while and it would be roaming around the house. Others won over by reptilian charm. Well, I've been a reluctant snake person all my life, but I kind of like your snake. Monty has been on Jeff's journey through Calgary Parks for years and has been a valuable companion on his road to recovery. He quit drinking a year and a half ago and says Monty deserves some credit. Right now I kind of got craving for a few months, so I decided well, I'll go for a walk. So take my mind off it and then watch people talk and it helps. So, and I don't want to start again. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I like that guy. He just owns his thing. That was Car- uh, Global's Carolyn Curry de-, de Castillo, by the way. This is a python. Uh, Monty, it's a very small python. <laughs> Arsenal said it's fine with him if a planned 30-minute walk turns into a couple of hours because people stop and ask questions, take photos, all that. Sounds like he likes showing off his snake. 
Um, he said when Monty's had enough attention, she tends to let him know by tucking into his jacket. Am I the only one that finds snakes really weird, though? That's one of the no, pets that I can't, I don't I like get. snakes. I like snakes. I think snakes are cool. Pet. I don't think I'd like, want to own one. I like them at the zoo. Some snakes can be, like, super affectionate and chill. Chill pets. They don't feel, so you get anxiety from walking a dog, yeah. but you're chill with a snake. I said I used to. Oh, I don't okay. want any more. I'm not a child anymore, What, despite what you may believe. Would you walk your snake? Uh, I would like to, I would, it would, I would take him out of the, like the, what do you call it? Like the tank or the, what, I forget what do you call it? Terrarium, whatever you call it. I would, and, and at parties and stuff, you know, and friends are over and be like, Hey guys, check out my snake. But would I take him to Confederation park and stroll down with the snake? Probably not. No, no. If you had a little Velcro collar, a little spike collar around your snake's neck and it was like slithering down the path and you had a leash. See that to me is cool. That's pretty. Yeah, that'd be. I would prefer that than draping it over my neck. Although it does give me the heebie-jeebies, just talking about it. So I'm going to let that be what it is. This is the Shift Podcast. Ryan O'Donnell has been sharing how he's trying to get his Canadian passport, which seems to be quite the task in today's world, at least in Canada. Brendan Kelly, he's got a whole bunch of passports. He's got an American passport, Canadian passport. Well, that's a whole bunch compared to me, BK. I got, I'm just born old Canadian. You yeah. can go anywhere. You're not three. Well, I don't know if I can three? go anywhere. Well, the Irish one, too. Well. Oh, goodness. See? Depending on where you're going, uh, you know, BK can use, you're only supposed to, I think, carry one at a time, but you can basically choose who am I today. Ta-da. Yeah. So we had some questions about all of this. And there are some articles that have come out about, you know, passports and what are good passports, what are bad passports to hold in 2022. Afghanistan passport, not really great after what's happened in the last year. Iraq, not great. Syria, really not great. So how does this all look? We needed to find an expert. And so what is an expert on passports if it's not somebody who travels through Europe? Our guest right now here on The Shift is joining us from Berlin. His name is Armand Arten. He's the chief global citizen with the Passport Index. Hi, Armand. How are you? Uh, Hello. Very good. Thank you for having me, guys. Wonderful. Appreciate you being here and uh, and uh, taking helping us understand, uh, taking a look at this. Let's start with what we were speaking about here with uh, our technical producer, Brendan Kelly Armand, about his passports. Let's get into the details about what you do and how there are some really great passports to have, and there are some that maybe don't really work in your favor. Um, let's start with Brendan Kelly. He has an Irish passport, an American passport, and a Canadian passport. Is that working in his favor, or is, is that just causing him grief? He's wasting his time. Let me, let me tell you about the power of passports and how they are measured. Um, okay. Every, every citizen uh, has one passport. Some are lucky and have more than one. Um, and the passports allows you to travel to certain countries without visa, with visa on arrival, uh, or with e-visa, which are pretty much online applications that will allow you to get uh, a digital barcode and, and travel within 24 hours, which we consider as well as a, a visa-free access. So Canada today actually 
is um, in the top five passports in the world. Uh, it's a number um, allows you to travel to 165 countries out of 199, which is wow. the official UN number of countries. So that's staggering. That's good news for us. Um, are, does it work differently, Armand, for us recreational travelers versus uh, people trying to do business? Or should we look at this just in general as access to countries? It, it, so there is three kinds of passports. There is the ordinary passports, which any citizen, it doesn't matter if your purpose of travel, it's pleasure or business, or leisure, um, you know, have it and travel in it. Then you have uh, diplomatic passports. Those are held normally by government officials. They have, of course, uh, much more visa-free and visa-free access to many countries as government uh, officials, so very difficult to actually track. And then you have the service passports, which is, um, again, government officials, but not diplomats. Um, so to answer your question, any ordinary citizen, regardless where you travel and for what reason, have exactly the same visa restrictions. Um, if there is a visa that you need to apply for, uh, the process is the same regardless if it's a business or a pleasure visa. And if it's a visa-free, well, then it's a visa-free. You have okay. the freedom to go to that country and book your trip. So access to other countries, though, what would be the benefit of that other than, you know, somebody who could afford to go to 186, I think he's 185? You say, anyway, 199, yes. 199. So 199 countries, aside from the fact that if you could afford to miss the time from work or travel like that, um, what are the benefits to, to holding these passports that get you access, uh, you know, to do that? Is it is it something that we should be actively doing every day? Um, you know, having access to 166 uh, countries, the, the other 33 countries you need to apply are not countries you're going to go any day or every okay. day to it. Most of the countries where Canadians are traveling have the visa-free agreement. But compare that to, as you mentioned, Afghanistan, Iraq, Lebanon, some of the worst passports in the world, where actually um, you know, their visa-free uh, does not allow them to travel to more than 35 countries or 37 countries uh, for a visa pretty much to go anywhere. And that is a very long and difficult process if you're a citizen of Iraq, Syria, or Afghanistan, compared to if you're a Canadian citizen traveling to any of the 35 countries that you need a visa, um, such as you know India or Saudi, and that's made every day more easy to apply for by converting the paper visa so you don't have to go to embassies anymore, but you can apply online. What is the most surprising country that you can't travel to freely, you know, as, as a Canadian or, you know, maybe just a, a common country, whether that's Britain, Canada, United States, Germany, whatever. What is the most surprising country that we wouldn't realize we don't have that free access, you know, visa to? Visas to like Afghanistan, Canadians cannot go. Of course, for security reasons, um, you know, uh, countries where there is political instability are not easy to access. So some African countries, Equine, Eritrea, um, Benin, um, are, are visa required uh, for Canadians. I had no idea, even in this conversation so far, to know that we we didn't have access just to go anywhere. Like I didn't know that if I was going to say we've had all kinds of guests on, you know, taking a stand for Afghanistan and, you know, women in Afghanistan and, uh, you know, translators and all. Like, so if we decided today to go to Afghanistan, I didn't know that you couldn't just show up at the door and knock, knock, hello, Canada calling and get in. 
I didn't know it even worked that way. I guess just kind of blindly assumed that that's meant we could actually just go places to visit. I had no idea that that was, um, that was actually a thing. So in the list that continues, by the way, with some of the worst passports while we reconnect with our, uh, Armand here, uh, North Korea, Nepal is on the list, Somalia, Yemen, Pakistan, Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and some of the best ones. Now, these are ties because there are multiple places um, that are um, all set here, including, um, you know, Japan as being the best. Armand, is, is Japan truly one of the best passports to get traveling around the world? So um, our ranking actually um, uh, ranks the best passport uh, being uh, United Arab Emirates. This is a surprising fact where many other um, uh, different uh, indexes are measuring it differently. But UE passport allows you to travel to the most countries right now with the COVID restriction, um, considering those limitations to the most country without any uh, paper visa requirement or visa on arrival. That's fascinating. I, Armand, I have to ask, I mean, how many, how many passport stamps? I mean, this is what you do. How many passport stamps do you have in yours? So um, let's start with how many passports I do have. <laughs> Seven. Oh, really? Um, yeah. And, uh, of course, I, um, I, uh, I was lucky to be born in different countries, lived in, in, in five continents, so I did acquire... Uh, citizens should buy what we call naturalization or descent. Um, some passports acquired by making investments in the country and making contributions in, in companies in, uh, in jurisdictions where jobs were created. But um, let's say today, I, I, under my personal mobility score, which means all the passports combined, allow me to travel to um, 179 countries out of 199. So I'm still 20 countries. Uh, I don't have an access. Wow. <laughs> I want to make a joke and say, come on, man, work harder then. Um, so <laughs> of all the countries in the world, uh, you know, how many have you really like traveled to? Obviously, it's it's a few. 102. Wow. That's fantastic. Okay. So let's talk about the business part of this, um, Armand, because if this sort of passport index idea is there, you said that, you know, making a contribution to improve the community or the country or whatever can get you access to a passport there. Would it make sense ever? Is there ever an opportunity for a business person to maybe you could suggest a country, get involved in business, invest in a business locally, charity, whatever in a country to get access to a local passport there so you could have more access and do business and travel a little bit easier? I would imagine like a, for me, I mean, an EU passport, anybody in the EU, so you could get around the European Union so much easier than I can with my Canadian passport seems to be one thought that comes to my mind. Absolutely. Um, I mean, there is an industry around what you just described, and, and it's called the investment migration industry. It started in Canada in the 80s, actually, where, um, you know, Canada attracted the first residents by investments, which were a majority from Hong Kong in the 80s and 90s. Um, and, you know, they took a very different migration path than the normal, I would call, refugee or family reunification, economic migrants. These people had to invest in the Canadian economy an amount at the time of 250000 Today, by the way, it's 1.2 million Canadian dollars, and then they get a permanent residence in Canada, which over three years, if they live in Canada, would uh, convert into a citizenship. 
Now, many countries in the world, actually de facto the number is 25 countries, have taken this Canadian model over the last 20 years and created a different kinds of programs that allow, as you described, businessmen from various countries, mostly from countries where they have a bad passport. So I would say China, Southeast Asia, Middle East, Africa. And this businessman would have to make an investment in the country. Um, anything that starts from $100,000 in some of the Caribbean islands to up to $5 million in Australia uh, in order to obtain an immediate citizenship or accelerated residence with a path to citizenship or just a residence. Um, and on an annual basis, there are 20,000 families investing um, around 5 to 10 billion um, every year in order to obtain another residence or citizenship just so they can have a better freedom, better mobility, or access to a better future for their generations, for their kids, like my parents did when we moved to Canada. Okay, that's fascinating to me. So if I have a, if I have a Chinese passport and only a Chinese passport, and I can come up with $1.2 million of investment in Canada, which would be a small strip mall or uh, some, we call it a commercial building. So now I've created a business, I've done my commercial investment on this commercial building, I could therefore get that residency card and potentially a passport in Canada, which now enables me to travel around the world and do more business or see more things and have more influence than ever before. So I can basically buy my way in. And that's in today's real estate number, that's not a big number. Well, uh, real estate is not an allowed investment. So um, but the, the only passive investment program that is still alive, even though there is a moratorium, is in Quebec. And uh, the investment has to be in a special, what we call the social impact bonds uh, of the Investissement Quebec, which is uh, the Ministry of Finance Special Division. And uh, these bonds uh, actually do not pay any interest, and the interest goes to support small and medium businesses. So the model is a little bit different. This is what we call a passive immigrant investor program. Um, it will take him about two years to some cases three to get the, to the status of a permanent resident and as I said he needs to live in Canada you know, pay his taxes um, in order to eventually qualify for a citizenship so it's a six-year process before he can really uh, benefit from the mobility of a Canadian passport um, there is entrepreneur startup businesses that are more close to what you described where you have to create 10 jobs for Canadians uh, in different sectors, technology, or invest $1 million into a startup venture capital fund. Um, and, and you can get uh, to different provinces uh, to the same status of a permanent resident in the country, um, considering investments and not a point system. Okay, that's fascinating. So you provide basically the core capital for you know that bond, and then the interest from the bond goes locally out, and but you yep. still own the bond, so it's you know you're not making money off the bond, but you've provided the investment capital as the bond base investment, and then that that continues forward from there. So, I mean, now this as a as a bringing in international investment sounds like a fantastic way to fundraise, but at the same time though, it does reek of the opportunity for people to buy their way, way into places that uh, normal people couldn't get their way into. So it must get abused from time to time. It is a win-win formula, okay? The country is in economic distress or in a uh, crisis or in high interest uh, uh, rates as we live in right now, inflation could benefit from actually raising money for zero interest uh, with such bonds. 
I mean, other countries attracting FDIs in general in order to diversify their economies. Um, the process of, on the other side, of, of the supplier, the applicants who are actually putting the money, is very strict on the due diligence, on the source of the funds, um, to making sure that this is uh, good applicants uh, with no criminal record, that they can prove that their funds have been generated from uh, legal activities, and it goes multiple tier of verifications from first level companies like mine, um, who are regulated broker dealers and do all the verifications. Then it gets verified by the banking sector, which actually, you know, receives the funds. Um, then it goes into verification by the provincial, uh, um, Ministry of Migration. And then the federals are the one, the federal Ministry of Migration is the one who verifies, uh, as well the criminal background checks, the medical background checks. So there's five layers. Of, uh, of um, you know, different uh, ways to protect that you know, nefarious actors do not use these programs to get into the country. Uh, and to be very honest, you know, the refugees are a much more easier way for somebody who has bad intention to get into the country than going through these programs. Yeah, well, there, I mean, there appears to be um, a, a time issue here. Like, you've got to take time. You've it's got to, you've got to do it all the proper way, and you has to be clear. And so that stuff seems interesting. I mean, this global citizen idea is really kind of cool. I feel like it's super Hollywood. Like, you can have your locker at the bus station with all your passports in it, like Jason Bourne does, and then you can choose which country you're from today. So I think that part is totally romanticized and awesome. So, Armand, you are, you are, this is your world. I mean, the, the globalization of, the you know, global citizen, you know, from your website and all that stuff is really cool, which we will post this if you want to read more at shiftheads.ca so you can connect uh, with Armand Art and, and learn more about that. But is there, I okay, so... I'm curious about Armand, the guy here. Is there one passport that you wish you had that you're working towards? And of the passports you have, what is the coolest? Well, to be very honest, I'm the most proud of having a Canadian passport. Um, and uh, I, I use it the most to travel. Um, to be very, um, let, let's give another hint into the spy movie, as you described, the Hollywood, when you travel, you, you have to pick up one passport that you're going to enter the country and you have to exit that country with the same passport. Um, so when you're picking, you know, you open your safe and you have um, seven different colors, seven passports, four different colors, and you're going to say, hmm, let me see which one I'm going to pick when I'm traveling to country X. Uh, I'm always thinking, if something happens to me in that country, um, I don't know, I'm kidnapped or there is a political uh, unrest, you know, and there is demonstration in the street and I'm stuck, which embassy is going to help me to get out? And, yeah, I would have to admit, nine out of ten times, that would be the Canadian having, you know, the most strong presence, international weight, um, embassies around the world that will help Canadian citizens who are strangled. Um, so from that perspective, you know, it, it is the passport I'm, I'm the most kind of proud to, 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 to have and to travel with. Uh, UAE, as I mentioned, is, is a passport that is uh, cool because 40 years ago this country did not exist. Um, and um, today they, they have one of the growest you know, um, economies, the best passport in the world. Um, and uh, the leadership of the country met with us five years ago and said, how can we make, at that time, the UAE passport was ranked 27 or 28. And they said, we want to make our passport for our citizen number one. What should we do? And in a period of three years, they signed about 80 visa-free agreements with countries, only in the purpose of giving the freedom to their citizens to travel the world 
and not going through the process of applying for visas. So this is cool. This is what I think, you know, um, visionary leadership allowing for their citizens to gain something that is invaluable, which is the freedom of mobility. And that's a pathway that we would like to have. Ah, this is so cool. Armand Arden joins us from Germany here. Chief Global Citizen Passport Index, which is passportindex.org, by the way. I will post that link up at shiftheads.ca for our community to take a look at so they can learn more about this. This is fascinating. We just wanted to know, Armand, which passport really gets you the most as we are in Canada trying to get passports, many of us, because that is incredibly delayed. And then, um, you know, Brendan Kelly's got three of them, so it did make us curious as to which one carried the most weight uh, to be able to get around. So this is very insightful and fun for us. Kelly has actually a a benefit of having five countries more visa-free right now uh, than uh, um, uh, simple Canadians. Um, You know, so uh, the fact that he has an Irish, an American, and Canadian increases personal mobility by uh, five different countries compared to all the Canadians. Awesome. I can tell you what it doesn't help him with. The cost of an Uber from LAX, by the way. The cost of an Uber from LAX is way more expensive, um, no matter what passport you carry. So. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much, Armand. I appreciate you joining us and being here, part of the shift. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Have a nice day. This is the Shift Podcast. With all of our contacts uh, back to Ukraine last night on the shift, we did get some inside information from the eyes and ears and words of Ukrainian in Odessa. Uh, Hannah Shalist was was on the shift and shared what that experience was like with rockets uh, landing right uh, on the literally in the port. Like we're talking on the beach. Imagine if it was your lake house and you have a, a dock with a you know a floating dock that you swim out to. That's kind of what got hit the barges out in the in the water there like that so um pretty wild when you think about um that storyline uh dr yevgenia gaber joins us here now yevgenia is uh of a similar capacity professionally uh is actually in ottawa teaching um as she does with carlton uh this summer and some programs but you did just in the last couple of weeks leave istanbul where you call residence now and so you're from Odessa. So all of these stories sort of tie together. How are you? How are you doing? And and how is your summer so far? Hi, Shane. Well, it's never been boring, uh, as you mentioned, uh, both in Ukraine because I stayed for some time in Ukraine as well, uh, spending my nights uh, in the shelters and just sleeping somewhere in the basement of my house where we were supposed to have a sauna and nice uh, chilling lounge areas, but now we're just using them for shelters. And uh, yes, Turkey is also interesting because now it's playing a key role in this uh, Ukraine-Russian brain deal. So all attention is there, but Turkey itself is not doing very good in terms of uh, economic situation, in terms of inflation. Uh, So they have their own problems, but apparently trying to play this key role in bringing Russians and Ukrainians together for, for a deal on grain and, as Turkey hopes, for a peace talks generally. Well, you've shared with us in the region as Turkey shares that other coast border on the Black Sea, really, um, all of this dictates who their neighbor is going to be. And so they have the deepest interest in in what's been going on. And now their inflation rate in Turkey is wildly out of control. I read a report that it's the worst of all the places. And yet, um, now might be a pretty good inspiration for, hey, we got to 
tone this down a little bit because not only is it our neighbors and who our neighbors will be, but it is massively impacting the economy of Turkey because their inflation rate is skyrocketing and continuing to be high. I, I, I'm really curious, actually, just to, aside from the global geopolitics thing, to ask you what it was like to buy groceries. Yeah, well, the prices are skyrocketing, that's obvious, and uh, the retail prices especially, because what uh, happens now in Turkey, it has several different reasons. Um, some reasons are related to uh, Turkish uh, financial uh, policy, so everything which is connected to their central bank, to how they have been dealing with the Turkish lira crisis and so on. Uh, the second one is obviously um, uh, because of the situation we have with the blockade of uh, Ukrainian ports uh, by Russia. Forces. So, because of that, uh, there are no uh, supplies, no supply chains uh, of grain and corn and sunflower and all kinds of agricultural products to Turkey. And it's important to understand that while they have their own wheat, so they basically buy Ukrainian wheat and Russian wheat for re-export, then with all other types of uh, grain like barley and then corn and everything else, they are using for their domestic market. So once they do not have that, of course, they have uh, prices which are skyrocketing. Plus, uh, they are afraid of... um, uh, threat of hunger and uh, social economic uh, destabilization in the so-called global south, in Africa, in Latin America, um, especially in the Middle East and Africa, of course, because uh, there might be other new waves of migrants and refugees, which is also crazy for Turkey, which is now hosting like 5 million of Syrian and Iraqi refugees. So it's a whole bunch of things there. But then in the end, what you see is uh, people really being furious about those prices and everyone just calls on peace with Russia and then getting back to business as usual and to normal lives because people are really concerned about this economic situation. The um, the numbers that this one article that I read was from ABC Australia and they spoke about a lady in the last year, eggs have quadrupled, cheese has tripled, the price of detergent for washing clothes 20 times higher. And this one lady says meat has basically vanished from her diet. She had to start to ration potatoes and, and things continue to skyrocket all over. Was that your experience when you were back in Istanbul for, uh, for your work when you were there? Did you see that kind of uh, increase of prices? Uh, I would not say that the situation is that dire because people are still buying some food and they are not uh, starving there to death, obviously. Uh, but again, because of the uh, gas and oil prices and because of the um, this wheat and corn, which is often used to by farmers for their um, animals like cows and lambs and so on, they, they, they obviously the prices for that uh, are skyrocketing as well because just the raw materials, let's say, Uh, to get uh, meat afterwards, to breed the animals and get meat, uh, they are all much, much higher than they used to be. But on the other hand, uh, the question that I would usually ask is, it's not only the question of what we have now, but what we might have had if we had a different situation. So if we were not uh, having uh, Russia with its aggression in Ukraine or sanctions on Russia to stop its aggression, I'm pretty sure the situation would uh, become even worse. So that is the uh, the price uh, every one of us has to pay. Ukrainians are paying with their lives, uh, spending their nights uh, in shelters and uh, basements, and someone just has to pay higher price for for some food in the market. So it depends. Yeah. 
I get that. And I get that the, um, you know, the, uh, there was a lot of speculation, and I don't want to give any credit to Vladimir Putin for being this smart, but there was a lot of speculation that these these kinds of economic situations in Canada, United States, places like Turkey, all these things might have been recognized as being so fragile. And that's why opportunistically now was the time. Now, I don't want to give that credit, and and but... You, you start to look at all of it and it makes you wonder a little bit, right? That's, uh, that's the case. And we're seeing that squeeze all over the place. Now, you did mention uh, in Odessa, your family is in Odessa. Uh, that's where you're from. Um, how, is, uh, how, how is everybody? Is everybody okay? Because, you know, rockets over the weekend, this weekend, like we talked about, um, lots going on. How are you doing? Because you're, now you're so far away. Uh, well, of course, I miss my family and I will be back to Ukraine once uh, I'm done with my uh, studies here with teaching in the university here. Uh, they are okay. And I think this is uh, something that all Ukrainians are generally sharing this uh, resistance and resilience. Uh, so people would ask in their uh, Telegram chats, uh, are there any handmade instruments how you can hit a rocket if it's uh, flying uh, quite low over your balconies? Meaning that uh, we are all ready for this uh, long term. Uh, marathon. It's obviously not uh, uh, we were not thinking of a war which can end in one or two months uh, so we have to be prepared for maybe five, maybe six months more. Uh, but then again I think it's important not to uh, have this fatigue uh, out of this war, right? And then uh, not to uh, shift focuses. So whatever we have now, all these problems it's not because of sanctions because obviously there are no sanctions against Russian food supplies, for example, and even less uh, pressure on it after this new grain deal. It's uh, about Russian aggression and Russia who is weaponizing everything. Energy, turbines, refugees, grain, that's just a chance to uh, intimidate and to to uh, blackmail Europe and the whole world. So there is no good time for aggression. It's not because it's fragile now. It's because how the world has been operating so far, right? Believing on this uh, in this rules-based order, which is now undermined by Russia. So it can happen anytime. Uh, Dr. Evgenia Gaber is with Carleton in Ottawa. That is where you are teaching this summer. You're a senior fellow there. Um, coming up on Wednesday, later on Wednesday, you have um, a pretty special guest that's going to be coming into your into your class and speaking. When the ambassador for Ukraine comes in... Um, do you just open the, how do you go about that? Do you just sort of open the floor for questions and conversation? Um, do you have an expectation? Um, it must be exciting, but at the same time, I mean, you're getting, you know, Canadian students who may be from around the world, but they're Canadian students. Um, you're, you're getting them in front of like the real conversation now. So uh, how do you, do you prepare for that? How do you prepare for that? I don't know. Well, we wanted to have an um, ambassador over for this class uh, because what I'm teaching is Black Sea security, but uh, I have diplomatic background, as you probably know. I've uh, worked for the government, and what I'm trying to um, explain to my students is uh, how things work, not necessarily how they are described in uh, textbooks, uh, not going too much into academic details, just doing a bit of that, but also um, organizing some meetings for them with decision makers and then explaining to 
them how the world of diplomacy works. So initial idea was just to have ambassador for one of those classes there. But then, uh, because on the um, 28th of uh, July, we also have the uh, statehood day uh, in Ukraine. This is the first time that we're going to celebrate it as a holiday, as an official holiday. Uh, I decided it might be interesting also to open up the uh, floor and to make this event public and then to invite uh, some experts and then some other uh, professors, uh, journalists, uh, if someone would be interested in that. And then just uh, to uh, show uh, which price and which costs Ukrainians are now paying for their statehood because it's not uh, irreversible. It's not that you are being given it for granted and then you just uh, uh, forget about it. We still, we are still fighting for sovereignty, for independence, for our statehood. And I think this is kind of symbolic to talk about this uh, hundreds of years and centuries of Ukrainian uh, statehood traditions, but at the same time, at the same time, to um, explain that it's still going on now. So these nation building and uh, state building processes and our fight for independence and statehood, they are still going on, just as we are talking to you now um, and having this nice chat and conversation. People are dying. Yeah, it is very true. The day of Ukrainian statehood will assert the connection of Ukrainians living now with many generations of our people. I find it surprising that sort of this official day, um, this is a new way to go about it. Um, but that depth of generation after generation is so important. What do you think it means differently for you, your family, um, your colleagues um, this year, this this day on the 28th for Ukrainian statehood day? Um, I guess that we would say with you know, loose language um, that hits a little different this year. Um, wh- how, what does that mean for, for Ukrainians and how can you bring that to your class? Yeah, absolutely. I will tell you that uh, we have never had so many, even Ukrainian flags uh, just on uh, our facades of our buildings or somewhere there on our balconies. We've never been singing national anthems uh, in the morning. I know there is this tradition in in the States and uh, in uh, some countries, but we have never had that in Ukraine. And uh, generally, you would refer to a state like a bureaucratic machine and then uh, the system which just provides you with some level of uh, services and bureaucracy and everything there. But this is now how it works for us. Uh, This is not how it works for us now, because when you are talking about statehood and about Ukraine now, uh, you almost have uh, tears in your eyes because uh, you are being killed. Uh, You are trying to survive and you are trying to prove that we have this right to have our sovereign state. So uh, Ukraine has become so much more uh, dear and close and important and uh, sensitive issue for all of us in Ukraine that I think it's only now that we have been uh, starting to appreciate what we have. We never thought about this this way before, but now uh, this is when you wake up in the morning and you don't know whether you will still have your sovereign state in the evening whether you are still going to have your summer house, your uh, small backyard, your garden, will it be occupied by Russian forces or will it be killed by a rocket or missile? Uh, it gives a very different perspective at how you look at things. So mm-hmm. it is different now. Yeah, I bet. And when you look at your family and your family lineage and where all that comes from too, the future, uh, the children of Ukraine, 
all of that. Um, you know, when we speak to the folks over at DeJour that are, are, you know, advocating for policy change and, and working so hard in the legal realm inside Ukraine, um, you know, that I, I get the impression that some of those lawyers, ex-judges and those, those people, they've always had this belief system in what Ukraine could become. Now there seems to be this underlying new urgency of we have to like this is this is this is it this is the time this is where history will be written um hopefully for the last time you know with all the changes that ukraine has gone on and and it seems to me and i don't want to speak out of turn because and i don't want to speak for uh, any of the the people that we've met which i know are colleagues of yours and people that you know but it seems to me that um even they after all of their hard work for years and years and years are still waking up to the fact that Yep, this is this is it. This is what has to happen. And that shift must be a different feeling. You know, you you're an expert in the Black Sea. So you you also as your 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 family and your country, but then the overarching political, you know, look at the whole area. So it, it must be a big change, just a big change in how you look at all of it. I would say that Ukraine now in the epicenter of world politics, not only because of what is going on in Ukraine uh, or uh, how we deal with Russian aggression, uh, but because this is uh, the situation which has uh, showed us in a very clear way uh, all problems that uh, we've had for years and years. Like look at the um, nuclear uh, non-proliferation, for example. Budapest Memorandum was all about that. Uh, when Ukraine uh, gave uh, up on its weapons and just uh, said, okay, we have uh, some uh, security guarantees, we're not going to have nuclear weapons anymore, look what happened. The so-called guarantor country is now attacking Ukraine, and we are still dealing with it, uh, with this aggression mostly by ourselves with the boots on the ground, but of course getting some assistance from the Western countries. So if you uh, talk to any other country, would they be uh, confident that if they don't have nuclear weapons, they will not be attacked by China, by Northern Korea, by Russia? No. The same goes for the United Nations, for example. All the uh, problems that we have in the Security Council because of uh, Russia's veto right, this is now obvious after this uh, aggression in Ukraine. And the same goes for energy security and for food security and for disruption of uh, supply chains and for uh, whatever mechanisms we now have in international law, international system. So it's it's all it kind of has been triggered by this Russian aggression against Ukraine. But of course, uh, generally, it's not only about Ukraine. It's about how do we talk about the world order afterwards? Do we still believe in international law? What do we do with the country who actually violates and undermines all that? So that's why Ukraine is important. Mm -hmm. Well, and what a look in the mirror, too. I mean, you're teaching in Ottawa, so you do spend a lot of time in, in Canada and, and around Canada, too. So, I mean, Canada is the same. I mean, as a Canadian, I can't help but to listen to your words and hear, you know, what are we doing in Canada economically to protect ourselves, to protect the food supply, to protect uh, electronics is a big one, right? In this world of of military, electronics is king, and yet we can't even be self-sustaining at that. Through COVID, we couldn't even build masks. And so, you know, I, I think that like you... Roger's you, disruption, just remember a couple yeah. of days ago, I mean, that's about cybersecurity as well, right? Yeah, yeah. regardless of the reasons of why that happened, just imagine if a bad actor decided, and I even said that on the radio, Yevgeny, I said, you know, why would you bother hacking the government? You don't have to, 
right? And, and you look, think back 100 years, 150 years to the Postal Service, why the Postal Service was so incredibly important in all these countries and around the world, because it was the way to communicate. That's why there was so many laws around what you couldn't do and uh, not do around the Postal Service. So isn't it amazing when you look at it that way and go, okay, well, this is how vulnerable we are. And as Canadians, I mean, we in Canada, we have one, less than one third of the amount of soldiers in all of Canada that lined up on the border of Ukraine and walked in from Russia, like less than one third. And we're a lot bigger. So I'm not saying that militarization is the answer. And I'm sure efficiency and effectiveness is part of that formula. But at the same time, when you speak of it that way, and what Ukrainians going through saying, hey, we have to be able to survive on our own here. I hope it's a wake up call for countries around the world. I hope it's a wake up call in the conversation around oil and gas and a conversation around energy and manufacturing and all of those things. Because if we don't, if the world doesn't learn from this, Evgenia, I mean, aside from taking the lens tightly on the Black Sea, and you've got Turkey and Russia and Ukraine and all the small countries sort of on the West End. Um, if they don't, I mean, they have to learn from this. And if the rest of the world doesn't learn from this, I find that so bothersome, so bothersome. Absolutely, I totally agree. And then look at what is going on now. Uh, Germany, for example, they have completely changed their yeah. uh, stance on uh, supplying weapons for That's the first time ever in history. They are just providing weapons to Ukraine. Look at Japan. They have been completely demilitarized after the Second World War. And now Japan is so dragged into this conflict also because they have their own uh, problems, including territorial claims with Russia in the Far East with this uh, island that they are kind of disputable, but basically uh, Japanese islands occupied by Russia. And now we have Ukrainian-Japanese relations, which are on their peak. We have never, ever had this kind of political dialogue with New Zealand, with Australia, with Japan, because they care. They care about Russia, but they also care about China. And China is just copy-pasting from Russian textbook very often. So it's pretty much the same. And for Canada, just to bring it closer to our conversation and discussion, because we're based now in uh, Ottawa, both of us. Uh, it's again, I think, a good uh, time to uh, have some lessons learned. It's not about outsourcing security to the United States or uh, NATO, right? You have to be prepared somehow yourself in case something happens in the Arctic, for example. Or with the energy security, it's it's a very good time, I think, to uh, step up energy supplies to, to the Baltic states, then just to think how we can stop Russia actually blackmailing Germany and Europe with its uh, gas supplies, and so on and so forth. Grain deal, the same thing like for Canada, this is the very good time to uh, come up with some suggestions and offers. So it's, as you say, it's just a very important period of time when we all have to reconsider our traditional views of what we're doing and where we are and where we're going afterwards. Yeah, it's a remarkably uh, awakening, if you will. Um, that's for sure. Dr. Evgenia Gaber is in Ottawa. Uh, she's an expert on all things to do with uh, the Black Sea from Odessa. Uh, typically resides in Istanbul, is teaching in Ottawa at Carleton in the Center for Modern Turkish Studies and uh, and all of that. Thank you for making time. I know your week has been really busy with everything going on in the teaching, and I know that you squeezed us in, and I am for, very grateful for that. And, um, and thank you so much for being so generous. I appreciate it. Thank you, Shane. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. 
Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.